Hello, and welcome to Mix DNA Podcast, the podcast with two mixed race hosts talking about any and everything. Each week, we pick a topic, do some research, throw in our own thoughts and opinions and experiences where applicable, and put everything together to share with all of you. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Melissa. Today's episode, episode number 82, is Mixed DNA and POCLGBTQ+. It's a lot of letters. Today, we're going to share some stories from the LGBTQ plus community from BIPOC members that we were able to find online that we thought were worth sharing. And we're going to talk about some of our favorite pop culture characters from TV and movies. And really, the diversity available to viewers these days is amazing. There's a lot to find out there, and we wanted to share some quality examples of what we are watching or what we've watched and what we think you might like as well. Let's get started, shall we? As Very Well Mind puts it, most everyone is aware of the discrimination that people belonging to the LGBTQ community and people of color face. However, many people don't realize the compounded life challenges a person faces when they are part of both communities. That's because they deal with the societal challenges of belonging to the LGBTQ community and the challenges of being of color. They may be subjected to both homophobia, biphobia, and or transphobia, misogyny, as well as racism simultaneously, and at different times throughout their life. Conversations about experiences of people who occupy both of these minorities aren't widespread. It's surprisingly common for people to fall under both identity umbrellas. 42% of people in the U.S. who identify as LGBTQ are also a person of color. That's nearly half of the LGBTQ population. People that fall under both these umbrellas are multiple minorities. Other examples of multiple minorities are someone who's black and disabled, or if a person is disabled and queer. The biggest challenge of being both LGBTQ and a person of color is being subjected to compounding systems of oppression, such as homophobia, biphobia, racism, and transphobia. It is more complex than the usual forms of discrimination, because either can happen within your own community, rather than being only discriminated against from other groups. Research shows that those who fall under both banners experience more microaggressions than their single minority counterparts. There are ways that we and you can take action to support people who are more marginalized than we are. The idea of intersectionality is about looking at different areas of identity and examining how they overlap. It's not nearly as complex as it sounds. The Center for Intersectional Justice defines intersectionality as fighting discrimination within discrimination, tackling inequities with inequalities, and protecting minorities within minorities. That means that when you look at racism, you also look at those who may experience homophobia too. Or when you look at homelessness, you don't just focus on the experiences of white unhoused people, but those of unhoused people of color too. To practice intersectionality, the main thing we need to do is shift focus from one area of a problem and instead look at the big picture. For a feminist issue, that means not only looking at how a problem impacts white women, but also going deeper to find out how it impacts women of color. Basically, intersectionality is a lens through which we can view the world, making us more conscientious people. It also makes us kinder and more caring because we're paying more attention to the various ways that people are discriminated against and working to stop them with each of our worlds. Cece McDonnell is a bi-trans woman and LGBTQ prison reform activist from Minneapolis, Minnesota. She rose to national attention for accepting a plea bargain of 41 months for the second-degree manslaughter of a man she stabbed 
after McDonald and her friends were assaulted in Minneapolis outside a bar near closing time. McDonald said she saw how her case in 2012 was progressing, so took the plea bargain rather than face trial and risk a possible 20-year term. Queer Events writes that the conviction sparked outrage and was viewed by many as an act of transphobia and racism against a woman who defended herself. Although a woman, McDonald was housed in two men's prisons. Experiencing the inhumane treatment of prisoners firsthand, McDonald began speaking out against the criminal justice system. McDonald said that prisons aren't safe for anyone, and that's the key issue. For McDonald, the issue of safety included her status as a transgender female in a men's prison. Transgender prisoners were assigned to prisons based on their sex at birth, rather than their gender identity. The penal system frequently placed them in solitary confinement, a psychologically debilitating isolation, purportedly for safety of the individual. The experience served to strengthen McDonald's character and establish her resolve to become a transgender leader. Free Cece, a documentary about her experiences focused on the issue of violence against trans women of color, was released in 2016. In 2014, she was profiled by Rolling Stone and included in their Advocates 40 Under 40 list, and she was awarded the Bayard Rustin Civil Rights Award by the Harvey Milk LGBT Democratic Club. Today, Cece has dedicated her life to the movements of trans liberation and prison abolition through public education and organizing. She is a frequent speaker at colleges and universities. Cece has also done interviews with Vice, Democracy Now!, and The Huffington Post. She works with numerous organizations, including the Transgender Youth Support Network in Minneapolis and the Gender Justice League in Seattle, Washington. As an activist in residence, Cece continues her critical work building abolitionist analysis with other activists and community members to dismantle the prison industrial complex, support transformative justice models and other responses to harm that do not rely on incarceration or the criminal legal system, and build up community support and power for trans women, particularly trans women of color in cultural, activist, and community projects. Our next story comes from the Indigenous community of Northern Ontario, Canada. In 1964, Mini Chakabi remembers returning to Ombabaka, the community she grew up in, from the forest where she had been trapping muskrats and weasels with her stepfather. She remembers her mother crying and waving a piece of paper. Her siblings were gone. They came and got the kids and waved a piece of paper and took the kids. Her older sister, Alice, was taken to Shingwak Residential School in Sault Ste. Marie, and her younger brother, Mo, was taken to McIntosh Residential School in northwestern Ontario. Chakabee remembers that the kids who didn't get taken were treated strangely and poorly. She shares her story with TVO Now as an Ojibwe Cree two-spirit elder, a writer, and a Canadian activist. She remembers feeling alone after her siblings and cousins had been taken. With no other children to play with, she spent hours on the trap line with her stepfather. Meanwhile, she was trying to survive physical and sexual abuse, a byproduct of trauma in the community, following the devastating loss of numerous children taken away. Today, Chakabi is most noted for her memoir, A Two-Spirit Journey, the Autobiography of a Lesbian Ojibwa Cree Elder. The biography was awarded the U.S. Oral History Association 2017 Book Award as well as the Ontario Historical Society's 2018 Allison Prentice Award for Best Book on Women's History in Ontario. Prior to publishing, Chakabee worked as a local activist on the LGBTQ issues 
and indigenous issues and later began to create and exhibit work as a painter. Today, Mani Chakabi is a mentor, support, and advocate of two-spirit communities across the country in Thunder Bay. Thunder Bay is one of the most dangerous places in Canada for Indigenous people, yet she calls it home and continues to mentor many individuals and groups, including the Window Debway Mosswin and Not One More Death, who work to make safety for all people in Thunder Bay. Our next story comes from Leah Mighty, who is the Canadian rock soloist in the hard rock metal punk genre. She shares with CBC that when she came out as lesbian, she thought she would find solace in the community of rainbows, unicorns, and love. Rather, she experienced racial comments and discrimination. She can recall being called an N-word at least eight times within the LGBTQ community. She said that she is often made to feel like an exotic tropical thing, where on dating apps, she sees profiles with disclaimer like, no black girls welcome here. She was also once told, while on a date, that, for a black woman, you're actually well-educated. Mighty, who calls Montreal home, says that she doesn't feel included nearly as much as I should be, not even close. I'm safe with my sexuality, but I need to feel safe as a black woman. Mighty tells Pride and Gender Ezine that when she started with music, she was performing pop and R&B, but really came into her own with rock music, which allowed her to say anything she wanted and that she didn't need to hold back. With the change in musical genres, she no longer felt the need to uphold a specific appearance. Mighty's first album is coming out later this year, and will exclusively be released on her own website. Her reasoning for this is that she believes music shouldn't be expensive, that it should be for everybody. She holds online candlelight acoustic concerts that cost $5 per ticket. Everybody can afford to support her music in some form, because she's priced realistically for today's market. Next up, a bit of history with Gladys Bentley. Bentley was a gender-bending performer during the Harlem Renaissance. Donning a top hat and tuxedo, Bentley would sing the blues in Harlem establishments like the Clam House and the Ubangi Club. According to a belated obituary published in 2019, the New York Times said Bentley, who died in 1960 at the age of 52, was Harlem's most famous lesbian in the 1930s and among the best-known black entertainers in the United States. The Clam House, where she most frequently performed, was a well-known gay speakeasy in the 1920s New York, where she was backed up by a chorus line of drag queens. Bentley would play the piano, sing all her own raunchy lyrics to popular songs of the day, and flirted with women in the audience. On the decline of Harlem speakeasies, with the repeal of Prohibition, she relocated to Southern California, where she was billed as the brown bomber of sophisticated songs. She was frequently harassed for wearing men's clothing. She tried to continue her musical success, but did not achieve it in California as she had in the past. During the McCarthy era, she started wearing dresses and married a man, claiming to have been cured by taking female hormones. During this time, she also studied to be a minister. In later years, in an essay she wrote for Ebony Magazine, she stated that she had undergone an operation to make her a woman again. Aside from her musical talent and early success, Bentley is a significant and inspiring figure for some in the LGBTQ community and African Americans, as she was a prominent figure during the Harlem Renaissance. She was revolutionary in her masculinity, because she did not try to pass as a man, nor did she playfully try to deceive her audience into believing she was biologically male. Instead, she exerted a black female masculinity that troubled the distinctions between black and white masculine and feminine. 
In 2016, musician Charlotte Ammons released an album entitled Twilight for Gladys Bentley that paid tribute to Bentley's legacy and reimagined Bentley in her relationship to hip-hop culture. Bentley's name doesn't have the recognition of many of her Harlem Renaissance peers, but her story is one to be remembered as her story is resurfacing. She is definitely a woman who was ahead of her time. Lastly, we wanted to mention Cecilia Chung. Chung was born in Hong Kong and moved to Los Angeles. Her story was one of the four main storylines in the 2017 ABC miniseries When We Rise about LGBTQ plus rights in the 70s and 80s. In 1992, Chung decided to transition and became estranged from her family due to their lack of understanding about her being transgender. At the time, she also had to resign from her sales trainer job to facilitate the process. She eventually ended up living on the streets and had to resort to sex work for livelihood, which subjected her to sexual and physical violence. She eventually turned to drugs for self-medication, and in the same year, she was diagnosed as HIV positive. In 1995, almost three years after becoming homeless, Cecilia was stabbed during a sexual assault and taken to the emergency room. Her mother, who was her emergency contact, came to the hospital and the two reconciled. Cecilia completed her gender reassignment surgery in Bangkok in 1998. Today, Cecilia is an intrepid advocate for LGBTQ rights. She has achieved several firsts at various advocacy organizations, including becoming the first transgender woman and first Asian person on the board of directors for San Francisco Pride, and the first open person openly living with HIV to chair the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. She is currently the Senior Director of Strategic Projects at the Transgender Law Center, and her activism continues to increase Asian American representation in LGBTQ spaces in California and nationwide. Chung founded San Francisco Transgender Advocacy and Mentorship to provide events for the transgender community through the San Francisco LGBT Community Center. She is also one of the founders of the annual Trans March. In 2013, she was appointed to the Health Commission by Mayor Edward Lee, and she made headlines for making San Francisco the first city in the United States to pay for gender reassignment surgery for uninsured transgender patients. Through her appointment, she was also able to train San Francisco Department of Public Health staff members about transgender issues in programming called Transgender 101. She also served President Barack Obama on the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV-AIDS, where she served two full terms and resigned right before the inauguration of Trump. We're now going to take this episode and turn it into one of our most favorite things, movies and TV. We wanted to share with all of you some of our favorite LGBTQ representations from movies and TV. And I wanted to start with Euphoria's Rue Bennett, played by Zendaya, my favorite. Rue is a complex and well-developed character who serves as the show's narrator. She's been through many highs, literally, and lows that make her a truly flawed but real human. Rue is a non-binary lesbian character who struggles to find her place in the world, mentally, physically, and sexually. Her connection and relationship with Jules proves to be a grounding point for her, though, and helps her come to realizations with her emotions that she may not have had otherwise. Rue is a very selfish character. She only thinks of herself and what she can gain from the situation more towards drugs, because that's the only thing she's concerned about, jewels and drugs, or together, both of them. The content of Euphoria on a whole has been very controversial since the series began, but that's a whole other episode altogether. 
Now, I'd like to talk about Pusey Washington from Orange is the New Black, played by actress Samira Wiley, who I really like. Pusey grew up a military brat, and her first lesbian relationship was with her father's commander's daughter in Germany. And when they are caught engaging in intercourse, her father is transferred back to the United States, and Pusey tries to suppress her feelings to no avail. Her story, like I was trying to reread her story, and I was like getting all confused and obviously I didn't have time to watch all whatever six seasons before putting this episode together but anyways her story and how she got in jail and all seems a little bit hazy to me but anyways she's like on a bus with her friends and she's supposed to like be going to Amsterdam and she decides not to go and then there's like monks on bikes and drag queens in a nightclub and she smokes a joint and it's like all very confusing it seems a little bit all over the place so I maybe should rewatch the series one day. But regardless of the story, I still really like her. I liked the character like right from the beginning. And this was my first introduction to Samira Wiley. So she seemed like someone that I would want to sit down and like have a drink with. And her relationship with her best friend Tasty, I just I really like them. They seem like like my people, people I would like. Um, and Pousset's relationship with Brooke while she's in prison. It's also like a very gentle relationship like it's nice to watch it go from rocky in the beginning to something special and then to see brooke spiral after the spoiler i'm going to talk about right now so pusey meets her death by way of suffocation from a guard in season four and her death becomes a central issue from which stems prison reform and the riot that happens in season five and into season six when it is shown that the riot actually made a difference there was actually a real-life justice fund in honor of the character, surprisingly, in which the initiative funded eight different nonprofit organizations. So that just shows the reach that Pusey had. That episode was sadness. I stopped watching, I feel like, because she was my favorite. I was like, how dare you? There's so many other people you could have killed that would have been fine. Oh, so sad. Next up... Let's bring someone funny into the mix and talk about Captain Raymond Holt from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, played by Andre Brower. Captain Holt is a great character for various reasons, including the fact that he's black, a police captain, and he's gay. It's rare to see a gay black man on TV that isn't flamboyant, and that's another reason Holt is such a likable character. In the beginning, I didn't, not that I'm looking for things like this, but I didn't even know he was gay. When his husband came, I just, their relationship is really, like, real, I guess. But that's the thing with that show. There's so many interesting characters, like, all so vastly different. Um, a lot of places to put your focus as a watcher. Holt doesn't hide the fact that he's gay. You always see the pride swag in his office. He talks about his husband, Kevin, all the time. And he works hard for equality in the workplace even starting A-A-G-L-N-Y-C-P-A, African-American Gay and Lesbian New York City Police Association. He's stoic, extremely stoic, no frills, kicking-ass police captain, who is unapologetically himself, and he makes a great character. So if you never watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I suggest you give it a try. It's also hilarious with the other characters. But I think he, I think he might make it more funny. Glee broke ground on many things during its stint on Fox, and one of those was the character of Unique Adams, played by Alex Newell. For those that don't know, Alex Newell was the runner-up on the competition series The Glee Project, for which the prize was a seven-episode arc on Glee. 
At the time, Glee was beyond popular, so if you were young and an up-and-coming performer, this was a great place to get started. During Newell's arc, they asserted themselves as an out-gay student. Newell first appeared in the third season in the role of Wade Unique Adams, a transgender teen who was assigned male at birth. The shy student would express their female identity through music as the bold, brave alter ego, Unique. This character broke ground for being one of the most visible transgender characters on television and one of the first on a network primetime show. Newell eventually went on to join the series as a recurring character in the fourth season, and for the fifth and sixth seasons, they were a series regular. Up next, one of my most favorite representation ever was True Blood's Lafayette Reynolds, played by Nelson Ellis. Lafayette's comedy and empathy and no whole bard attitude quickly made them one of the most standout inhabitants of Bon Tombs. That's how you say it, right? Bon Tombs. One of their most compelling aspects is how he doesn't take shit from anyone and doesn't back down from his morals, all the while being wholesome. He is constantly on guard for being a gay black man in an obviously super racist traditional southern town. Some of the early subjects that True Blood tackled were race relations and LGBTQ issues through the use of vampires. There's a specific scene that comes to mind when a group of racist homophobic customers send a burger back to the kitchen, saying that's full of AIDS, and Lafayette is not having it. That was very funny. He did good. TV and movies are continually becoming more and more diverse, which is finally a more genuine representation of the actual world that we live in, with people of all races, genders, and sexual orientations living in one space. There are always going to be people who are bigots, racist, and ignorant assholes. We can't do anything about that. They're never going to go away. What we can do as supporters of the LGBTQ community, and more specifically the BIPOC LGBTQ community, is educate ourselves on their issues, their concerns, and the things that affect their communities, and that comes from understanding and knowing people's stories and listening and or watching about their experiences. Thanks for tuning in today, everyone. We hope you found today's episode informative and entertaining. If you like what you heard, we would love for you to give us a five-star rating, a follow, or a subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to right now. And if you can, please leave a positive and or constructive review. We'd really appreciate it. Also remember to follow us on social media, Instagram, or Facebook at MixDNA Podcast, and visit us on our website, www.mixdna.ca, where you can find our resources, Mix Monday features, contact info, and our storefront for all MixDNA merch. Thanks again for tuning in, and you'll hear from us again next week. Bye. Bye, everyone.